Monday, April 11th. You are listening to LA Podcast. My name is Alyssa Walker. I'm here with Matt Tinoco and Matt Tinoco only. Well, not really. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Matt. Later, we are going to be joined by Cerise Castle, who's going to talk to us about the week in sheriff life. Uh, she hosted a candidate forum uh, for sheriff's candidates but not one candidate in particular. And then we'll also talk about him as well. <laughs> it's a it's a fun interview and we'll get to it at the bottom of the show. But right now is the part of this whole little introduction bit where we plug that in the show notes, there's a link to our Patreon and a link to our newsletter. Every little bit that you contribute, it just, it keeps, it keeps us coming back to this. And so, yeah, that's not just the show that you're listening to right now, but our newsletter, it runs on Saturday mornings and you would do well. It's, it's a good newsletter. It's a good product. People really like it. Most people open it. Maybe that's going to be you too. And it includes usually a piece of original writing, some links, and then just some little gossip bits from around Los Angeles this past week. Yes, and you can find links to both of those things in the show notes, wherever you're listening. And also you can follow us on Twitter at The LA Pod, or you can sign up for to join us on the Patreon page. And you can also still buy fanny packs. We learned that one of our fanny packs was, was stolen out of a car. Um, so they are very um, desirable items, I guess. Uh, in the in the city of Los <laughs> Angeles, if you're if you're walking around with that one, you're welcome. But please don't take them. One quick update from last week: uh, Scott is off this week, and uh, Rachel's not joining us this week. But from her update last week, the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union 770 reached a tentative agreement on Monday, including wage increases, guaranteed hours for part-time workers improved store safety, stronger health benefits. So you can now go back to shopping at Ralph's, Albertsons, Vons, and Pavilions. Do not let that stop you. Good news. Good news. Good news for grocery workers. Matt, do you have an LA story for us? I think I do. I think it's, um, it, it was a very positive moment actually, because I, one of the criticisms of LA podcast is that we can be, I don't know if relentlessly negative. I think that's my word. I don't think that's a, a criticism, but we're that is- We're trying not to be. We're trying not we're to just... be. And, and my LA story is one of those really good moments because this past week, I was lucky enough to go get my second booster COVID shot as a J&J original. I've now had three shots. There was a formerly homeless woman. She was a black woman in her 60s who was- it was a quiet time at the vaccine getting area. And and everybody in that particular area was focused on her because she was there to get her very first shot. So it's not like I'm I'm not working as a journalist in the situation. I'm just basically listening to what's being discussed in this sort of vaccine area. And I learned that she was formerly homeless. At some point she I overhear that she was telling everybody how she lived on Skid Row and she's been housed now for a period of time, for at least a year, it sounded like. And she was there with her two, I guess they were social workers who were escorting her. Like they had driven, I heard that they had driven her almost an hour to get to this point where she was wow. getting the shot. And then all of the nurses in the vaccine area, it was pretty, it wasn't very busy. It was just like, it was me and her and two other people who were getting our shots at this particular time last weekend. And everybody was just, I mean, everybody was also really excited that she was getting the shot because like, thank God that now, to a year after vaccines were available, this woman in her 60s, who in paper is probably one of the more vulnerable people to coronavirus, was getting vaccinated. And it's just like, there's still so many people who are not vaccinated and it's not because they're anti-vaxxers. Like she was really, it seemed, was really hesitant about side effects. And everybody was saying, it's okay, we've all done it, you'll be fine. You've gone through harder stuff before, which is true. Um, and it was just ultimately really heartwarming to see that the entire apparatus, the whole homeless services system, like it worked. There was something there. Something occurred. Like this woman presumably is a resident in support of housing and like will be able to live there for the remainder of her hopefully many years. And here are the supportive services. They were able to 
two social workers were able to pick her up and drive her to go get the shot. And I'm sure it was wow. a it was a a sort of long process to to get to this point, but it was it happened and it made everybody the I don't know 15 or so people in the little vaccine area very very you know happy that it happened. So that is my happy LA story. I'm glad that there is there is something out there. There's lots of people doing the work and I'm glad to see that it it happened. It reminds me of a friend of ours who um, has been living um, in our neighborhood unsheltered for a few years and um, also waited to get his booster just because of you don't know what your side effects will be when you might get moved around from one part of the city to another. And sure enough, as soon as he got his booster the next day, um, the sanitation department was out there telling him to move to the other side of the street. So there's just, you know, the the complications of deciding when to plan out when you can have a down day don't really, uh, they, they are different when you have to uh, vacate a sidewalk where you live. And that might be another reason people might have trouble getting vaccinated or wanting to get vaccinated on a certain day. It's more complicated than just anti-vaxxers don't want a shot. Which exactly. I like to think that exactly. we all know at this point, but I don't think we do. I'll, I'll have also kind of like a good news LA story. We went out to the desert to Joshua Tree um, the other day just for like one night. Very gorgeous desert vistas, not very far away. A very wonderful um, day trip or, you know, overnight trip or well, kind of too far for a day trip, overnight trip to make this time of year with all the wildflowers blooming. And on the way out, um, we stopped for food or something in Redlands where they are testing Metrolink service to start new express service to downtown LA. And of course we get off the freeway and I'm so excited because there are all these signs that are like train testing happening and such like, a transformation in the little Redlands downtown area that's around the train station. They've built all this housing and all these new shopping district type areas. And there's new trees and beautiful sidewalks and these really like fancy crossings to get over the train tracks. I was just so happy to see, you know, despite all of this, uh, you know, slowness in our own um, rail development and the inability to actually build densely around some of our train stations, even some of the new ones that are opening um, coming soon uh, with some of these lines that were opening this year, um, just to see the, the, the communities all the way out there um, really embracing this like densely populated cluster of development um, around this train station, which, I mean, I don't know how long it's been since they've had reliable, like a reliable connection. You could take like Amtrak, but it's like always like it picks you up at like two in the morning or something like that, like that out there. But um, this, it was just really exciting. And to think of all the cities along those Metrolink corridors, which Metrolink um, just changed their schedules and added a bunch more trains, like make it way more convenient to take your little... Um, you can take a weekend trip, speaking of weekend trips, you can't get to Joshua Tree, but you can use a $10, day, $10 a day pass. Kids ride free on the weekends and you can go to so many places, including the beach on Metrolink. So I highly recommend it. I mean, I think about the reach of Metrolink from, from actually, where does it, like Ventura, Oxnard down to Yeah, Oceanside. you can go to Ventura. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know if you could do that before. Or maybe you used to be able to, but you can go all the way to Ventura on Metrolink. So that's $10, you know, two adults for $10 and free kids. What a great day trip that is. That's super fun. Or spend the night or camp. It's very, I, I've wanted to, I haven't been on, I haven't been on the commuter rail actually in a while now I think about it, but I've been wanting to just because I, I used to ride it relatively regularly and, and I, I would like to again because they're plush and fun. <laughs> they're plush and, they are plush and fun. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to describe it. Okay, so one place that Metrolink is good to take this summer, like I said, is the beach because it's going to be very hot this summer as this week kind of provided a warning for perhaps this past week. 
the highs for Friday, which you remember was kind of like the stickiest day. Mm-hmm. These weren't just record-breaking daily highs, but they were like, they broke them by a lot. So you have like downtown, the record was 92 and it was 95. Long Beach, the record was 92 and it was 100, 100 in Long Beach. Um, these were brutal, brutal for April. And so we wanted to quickly talk about um, what we're going to be doing about that, which I think the answer is kind of like nothing slash um, Idling going after people. <laughs> With the AC on because Literally. it's warm outside. <laughs> That's kind of like a good metaphor for like what the city is doing. It's like, it's an idling car with the air conditioning on for anyone who's in the car. And then for everyone else, you have to like sit outside and on the hot pavement and inhale the exhaust. That's our, that's how we go attack summer here. So on Thursday, and I wish I had gone downtown for this. Um, I just assumed I had some things to do and I assumed that it would be over by the time I made it down there, but it was not. Um, there was this massive uh, action worldwide called Scientist Rebellion where scientists uh, basically tried to get arrested for doing various uh, actions uh, all over the world um, to bring attention to the climate crisis and the IPCC report that came out earlier this week on Monday. Um, And in downtown, we had, I think, not surprisingly to anyone, one of the most uh, uh, law enforcement uh, driven responses to such an action. Uh, Peter Kalmus, who is a JPL climate scientist, uh, two other scientists and an engineer chained themselves to the door of a Chase bank. Um, it was on 7th, right? That one, right? When you're coming over, like right when you're- I think it was 7th and Figueroa area. Yeah, yeah. Right, right on the other side of the 101, I or think the 110, it, sorry. Was this the building where there's somebody with their, like a, a statue of like their head put into the building? Because I think it was that <laughs> Perfect. That's also good symbolism. Um, so just a typical, like, uh, you know, four, literally four people and- you know, just chained to the door. You can't get in the entrance of the door, but I think there's another entrance to the door. Probably like it wasn't any kind of like major security um, issue. It was very typical from a lot of the um, nonviolent actions we've seen. Somebody chained themselves to the fence of the White House, for example. So we had these, you know, similar actions going on. And then I'm just watching because uh, Peter's feed, uh, he's, he's a big Twitter follow. Um, and these videos of, uh, again, police in riot gear just rolling in like vehicle after vehicle and just surrounding the building, pushing people, you know, back so they can't get any closer. There are people who are like providing them with like food and water because it was very hot that day as, as well. Um, and just the response, like, were you shocked by this at all, Matt? You were, you were also kind of watching from afar. No, I mean, what I, I, my experience was looking online, seeing many, seeing, seeing two conflicting images where there's not that many people out protesting. There's literally only four people who were chained to the door. So it wasn't even that many people. And then there's maybe, a, I mean, there were, there were many more police than there were uh, people who were a part of the civil action, I guess. It almost looked like a rehearsal, I think, on the part of the police department to be like, oh, well, we need to make sure we can actually issue an unlawful assembly and have people actually hear it because maybe that hasn't happened <laughs> in the past. Oh, they were just practicing with yeah, their right with that, their right gear on. That's what their, I that's yeah. what I saw because obviously there wasn't really any. There was there was it was a highly peaceful civil. I mean, there wasn't any people were chained in place. People were already wearing like arrested lab themselves. coats. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's not even like uh, they're they're typical how they like to uh, qualify certain people as protesters or instigators. They're wearing like white lab coats. It's just I I mean I think the. I mean, Peter Peter Kalmus has also a book out there called "Being the Change," which I remember reading a couple of years ago. And it is it is just like you said in our in our newsletter. Alyssa wrote a newsletter on this subject too. Um, 
but but his his style of communicating the ish, on the issue of climate change is very very personal insofar as how do I as an individual wrangle with this entire everything, and that's very much why he's taken it upon himself to become a sort of ombudsman of of the of I mean at least in Southern California particularly, but also in many other places because he also wrote a, a opinion piece for the Guardian on this where he was basically like I don't understand it's. I think his tweet was something to the effect of this is worse than don't look up. Literally nobody even bothered paying attention to us at all. <laughs> yeah. Like there was no that media was, attention. <laughs> that was very striking, right? So all the, the um, we're comparing it to don't look up as a kind of a, um, a, a, a what what grabs people's attention and, and why. Um, yeah, he did. He had this op-ed that, that went um, up the, like at the time with when he chained himself on, he was arrested um, later that day. And yeah, he said that too. He was like, I really assumed like more people would be asking me questions about what happened, that there'd be at least coverage in local media. He said there there wasn't, maybe, maybe there will be. I mean, I'm not, it's just, it didn't like register as news, but also like, shouldn't the fact that a hundred cops in riot gear responded in this way, streets were closed. Yeah. Like, there were helicopters everywhere. And I and I remember like getting back to my house and I could see that there was like a lot of helicopters in the air and kind of hear them and be like, oh, I wonder what that is. And it was related to this. And I was really shocked that not even the overdramatic response, overmilitarized response, um, that was not newsworthy in itself. Somebody said something really funny, like, oh, they're closing the streets. That is that is climate action. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this how is this how we get our our uh, you know our our car free streets? But I guess it's not news. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, because it's just it's just kind of routine in that there's these massive police responses in Los Angeles, and it just happens every day, and usually it's out of view. But in this case, it just happened to be really high profile. I listened to a local newscast the next morning where there was the briefest mention that there was some protest in downtown Los Angeles, but it didn't make any reference to the fact that there were tons of police officers there as if this was like a violent action, which it wasn't. There was literally nothing going on. And there were some people yelling at some cops on the sidewalk, but that's about it. And I don't know, that's different. Not different, but it's just, it's just, I guess, kind of routine, which is kind of It's just typical. Yeah. And again, on Thursday, um, this was another day that was very hot. Um, I was walking around that day and noticing how few trees we have in our city. A lot of people were mentioning that, I think, on social media. Um, People are waiting longer for buses uh, because service has been cut at stations that have no shade, stations stuff that have no shade. And again, like it's just this egregious misdirection of our city money for this action. This is, you know, this response to an action um, literally compared to, you know, you turn around on 7th and look and, um, you know, why, why isn't this street a shadier and zero emission uh, priority pathway uh, to move through our city. It's just, it was just, it was just too much. It was too much. I mean, to think about the idling cars, that's literally what happened here is that there were a bunch of like city of Los Angeles <laughs> yeah. resources. Those aren't electric police cars, are they? Like, <laughs> no. And then, and then it's, and even then, <laughs> like you literally just burn, I mean, distinctly, like the city spent lots of money doing. Well, the helicopter fuel alone, right? Like, I don't know, like that must be. It must cost extra now. (laughs) I think it's really, I mean, the whole point is that the city resources are being used for something that is absolutely has nothing like to to quash any attempt to try and and reverse the sort of situation that we're in. And yeah, it was really hot. Just for reference, like I meant to say this earlier, but I missed it. But uh, because who can remember what average is at this point? Average right now in at this time of year for downtown Los Angeles is 72 degrees. And when it was... Uh, I mean, it was 95 in downtown uh, for early April, which these are these are like they're warm in summer temperatures. Although I think at this point, we're kind of just accepting that 90 degrees during the summer as usual, which like 90 degrees is relatively high for Metro Los Angeles, um, but not anymore. And I guess that's kind of the whole thing. But I think, I mean, we had a number of other climate headlines this past week too that I figure we should mention also. And one of the things that caught my attention was that just... Uh, for our water supply, because 
because it was so warm this past week, and the, especially the Sierra Nevada, our state snowpack value is currently at about a quarter of its historic average for April. So there's only about 26% of the April average of for snowpack in the Sierra Nevada. And that's not great, obviously, because that's our water supply for the most part in California. Like we don't get water from, our water comes from snow runoff in the mountains. Sometimes we pump water out of the ground that was at some point probably runoff from the mountains, but groundwater just takes a long time to be replenished, not in a, in a time span that makes sense for like our sort of human civilization. And so now we're entering the situation where our reservoirs have water in them because there has been rain and runoff, but we're headed towards a future where there's not snowpack in the Sierra Nevada. And that's very, like, not regularly, not reliable snowpack in the Sierra Nevada. And that's really, really disastrous for our water situation because really then it becomes down to the water that we have in our reservoirs is all of the water that we have. And, like, that's just, it's just a very tenuous situation. Well, and, I mean, I haven't really, I'm, you know, you maybe heard some stuff at the state level about talking about conservation. I haven't heard any messaging locally um, about any type of additional measures that we might be taking in the city. And this is where I always ask about Measure W, which was, uh, it's this mm. parcel tax we voted through in 2018 that it, you know, it, you, you pay extra if you have impermeable surfaces on your property. And it was meant to kind of incentivize people to, you know, break up the concrete on their properties and, and you know, kind of refill our aquifers and, and this groundwater that we're talking about um, locally. And I haven't even, like, have you noticed, like, the biggest thing we could be doing is just like literally like punching holes in the concrete all over our city and letting the water stay here. And I don't see any kind of transformation uh, to that scale um, happening over the last four years or at all, you know, it, just within our city. In fact, I can think of several fresh parking lots that have no permeable <laughs> anything anywhere. Yeah, that I can We've just added, name them. Probably. <laughs> Yes. No, I mean, and, and just seeing like the, the, uh, during this time of year, how, the difference of just standing underneath the tree or in a, you know, a grassier or, you know, well, well, uh, uh, irrigated area, um, compared to one of those great parking lots, um, where, uh, where it's going to be a, a very, very rough summer. And, um, who knows who will be in charge of our city during it? Wink, wink. I think just the, <laughs> the, the last thing I wanted to just, when I go back to thinking about water in sort of all this context, I, I did a bunch of reporting a couple years ago on tree mortality uh, in the oh, Sierra right. Nevada. Uh, it, this was for a story that didn't ever make it out, but it was probably one of the most orienting things I've ever done with regards to understanding like our local ecosystem and how marginalized it is at this point. So for if you you can probably Google it and find some headlines, you might have learned a little bit about it just because this was a relatively it comes up every now and then. It's like hundreds of millions of trees in the Sierra Nevada have died, mostly because uh, of a combination of more heat more invasive bark beetles going through and killing the trees, basically an invasive species that can very easily kill the trees that are weakened because it's hot and dry. Um, and the consequence is now that there's a bajillion dead trees in the Sierra, not, like literally hundreds of millions of dead trees in the Sierra Nevada, including whole sections of the Sierra Nevada forests have just died. And so in the summer times when it's very hot, this we see this manifest as fire. Um, so you have a bunch of just dead wood material that becomes really, really, really very hot, uncontrollable fires, which pollute the atmosphere and, and release a bunch of carbon and also destroy. There's a bunch of little tinderbox towns all through the Sierra Nevada that have one road in and out. And they're basically indefensible because they're in the forest. And now half of that forest has literally died and become just raw tinder. But then what happens, the fire happens bad for the watershed because it's just a bunch of burn material that then flows into the watershed. But then over the long term, what's going to end up happening is that fewer trees, more, more dead forests means less shade for the snowpack. 
And I don't right. remember off the top of my head exactly who did the the research. I think it was UC Davis. UC Davis, I can't remember exactly. But it was basically saying that because of the tree mortality, we're going to see a reduction in the capacity of our uh, mountains, of our mountain watersheds to basically preserve snowpack um, longer into the year and serve as a sort of controlled release into our water storage uh, infrastructure. And that's, um, I mean, it's just one fold of this whole thing, but also kind of emphasizes just how all interconnected everything is. It's like our fires are related to unhealthy forests becomes an issue for water, our watershed and our water security practically going forward. And it's just all very much interrelated. And it's also practically not that difficult from a policy perspective to draw the lines directly from one thing to the other. And it's just- Well, even with like street trees, how much of a different street trees help with keeping our water local and not flushing it down to the LA river, right? So I don't think people think about how much those little reservoirs are created when you're, you know, dropping them at at these like, you know, punctuated increments um, throughout the city. I mean, that helps a lot. And the fact that, I mean, there's trees that have been planted brand new um, in my neighborhood that I've been taking pictures of that are dead after one year that nobody even watered. And some of them have those little watering bags on them. Like they're just not being taken care of. So again, like, are we, how, how many trees are we going to need to plant over and over again that could have already been established and providing so many of these benefits um, after a few years, we're, we're losing them. I mean, that is just as part of this whole new initiative that we were supposed to be starting. I feel like there's been 20 times that Los Angeles has said that we want to plant a bunch of trees and then they just <laughs> plant some trees and half of them die. Uh, and again, where is that platform from our mayoral candidates? Where's the tree platform? Where's the tree platform? And like we actually it. mean it. Like just actually want just plant it. trees. That's basically the just step one to actually making Los just Angeles do better. it. You personally, the mayor of Los Angeles, plant these trees. Well, speaking of that, not really, but speaking, I guess speaking of water and power. <laughs> water and power. That's a great segue. Yeah, water and power. That's absolutely a great way to do this segue because next we're going to be talking about city attorney Mike Fuhr, who is the city attorney, an elected official. He's also running for mayor. He, at some point, was a sitting city council member for City of Los Angeles. I think he was even in the state legislature at some point yes. way back. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Mike's in trouble because this past week there was some more more evidence uncovered that shows, well, he may well have known a little bit more than he's let on about this entire, the DWP billing scandal and its subsequent sham lawsuit to try and help the city get out of accountability for its DWP billing mess up. Yes, to remind you of this, and please do go back and revisit our uh, special episode we did with Justin Klotzko. Um, This was... Uh, so good for me to finally like understand fully what <laughs> has gone on here because it's very complicated and we are, you know, you, if you don't know all the details, it's fine. We've, we've got you. That's why we're here for you. But the, here's just like the quick version of it. Um, a number of years ago, like almost a decade ago, um, LADWP overcharged about 50,000 customers for service. And there was a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of the rate payers, except it was a fake lawsuit. <laughs> really, what was going on was the city was orchestrating a sham lawsuit where lawyers for the city represented both the DWP rate payers who were overbilled and then also representing itself. Like the city was on both sides of this lawsuit. Very, very illegal stuff. And by now, you, there was a federal investigation. You probably remember at some point the FBI rolled into City Hall East and the DWP building. There have been several indictments and get guilty pleas from, from the federal judicial system. The former general manager of LADWP pled guilty. Former senior city official or city attorney office members have pleaded guilty. Other people who were involved in this have pleaded guilty. And in these guilty pleas, there's a bunch more information about uh, what actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> and and when we had the episode with Justin, um, one of the things he said too, that we were kind of like tracking as the, this case moves forward 
is what did Mike know? And the big question here was, uh, you know, he has a, a reputation for being like very involved in these decisions, uh, almost a micromanager. And like you said, all these top officials are pleading guilty and, you know, basically saying that he knew. <laughs> and uh, this would also seem like something he would know about if this level of this operation would actually be occurring. Um, but there was no real uh, smoking gun, perhaps, to connect him to, you know, when these decisions were being made. Well, this week, KNBC, which is Channel 4, broadcast a story by Eric Leonard that shows Foyer was named in a schedule to attend this meeting where we know from the federal court docs that this plan to conspire to fraud the city happened. So just for a little background before we play, I'll play, we'll play a little bit from the Channel 4 story. Um, but before we do that, just admitted statements in federal court documents already, including a bunch of guilty pleas, make reference to a meeting that happened on December 1st of 2017, where there was discussion among, quote unquote, senior members of the city attorney's office about how to keep covered up the, the reality that L.A. had constructed an entire sham lawsuit against itself to basically further defraud the people who had already been ripped off by LADWP. So we're going to we're going to play that clip right now. Just remember that the meeting that is we already know that there was a meeting where conspiracy was agreed to in on December 1st of 2017. So I filed a Public Records Act request for a copy of the city attorney's office calendar for that day, hoping it would reveal who else was in the room. You can see on December 1st, 2017, it shows only one meeting related to the DWP, this one at 4.45 p.m. And among those scheduled to attend, Thomas Peters and Mike Feuer. In a statement to the I-Team, a spokesman said Feuer goes to a lot of meetings and can't remember this one, though the calendar makes it appear he was there. Feuer denies there was a discussion of anything illegal or a cover-up. Okay, so Thomas Peters, the guy who was in the meeting that was on Feuer's schedule, pled guilty um, to extortion the day after this story aired. Specifically, what he admitted that he did was that he threatened one of the hired attorneys in this charade that um, they would be fired. And again, these were there were all these attorneys that they had hired, like very high profile attorneys to participate in, in this um, sham lawsuit. Um, so he was, Peters was threatening someone that they would be fired unless that lawyer paid 800 grand to another person who was threatening to go public about how the city was handling the situation. It's classic textbook extortion here. <laughs> textbook extortion. I think maybe as the cherry on top to this whole little thing is that at some point in the past couple of weeks, we've also seen a text message um, related to Peters's guilty plea uh, which was basically a message from Peters that said, "Mike's not happy." About, I, I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but the it it, it named Mike Fear as being the person who uh, was was it just it, it was just another note for Mike Fear knew about this entire situation. Which again, officially, Fear has not been charged in any of this, so there's no alleged crimes that Mike Fear has been named as publicly committing. But at a certain point, it's just kind of like like one of the things Justin Klosko noted in his in his write-up after the the day's schedule became apparent was that during Fear's deposition, he's just said, I don't recall or I don't remember 60 times, which is just it's not truly bonkers. <laughs> like I, I just and then, and then, like I still get press releases that the city attorney's office has filed a new lawsuit against a a smoke shop that is causing a ruckus. Like that's a relatively routine thing that happens in the inbox. But also, Alyssa, we had after after the after the the schedule from December of 2017 came out. There was there was one other curious. What was what was what was that release? I'm I'm trying to remember. He he said something else. Well, right, the same. So we had, like you said, we we've never really had him say one way or the other. Like you know, I was there, I wasn't there. It was always you don't call. And then um, there was a, actually a statement the day before the story came out from Rob Wilcox, who is also someone who's running for office. He's a spokesperson for the city attorney. He's running for a controller. Um, he at first said you know, kind of just said like, 
kind of like the the I don't recall of the uh, a, a twist on the I don't recall. Just like he goes to meetings, maybe he was there. I don't know his names. You know his name is on all these meetings, whatever. And then the next day, uh, another statement comes out saying that uh, Mike Fear has tested positive for COVID, and I assume we won't be hearing anything more from that right now. I hope he's okay and he gets better. But it's just we're not gonna get any more information. Um, at the moment, I think. Consumer Watchdog did also send out a release calling for Foyer to step down um, and uh, saying that the, uh, you know, from, from the perspective of the the rate payers uh, who have, have been uh, on this long journey, um, this was enough for uh, the people to demand that he uh, step aside, that his... Uh, it was tied too closely to uh, what they believe to be the truth. The last thing I think is just, I. it was only this past week that I learned that it was 50,000 DWP customers that were involved in the initial overbilling situation, which 50,000 is a lot, but at the same time, it's also not actually a lot relative to the scale of the city of Los Angeles. And it's, right. just, it's just like, I cannot imagine a world where just settling on good terms for those 50,000 customers, those 50,000 DWP accounts, I just can't imagine a situation where that was more expensive than what's happening now, where we have this entire just complete mess that we don't have a figure on how much this is costing, but it's tens of millions of dollars. And that's something that Justin Klosko does tabulate or has, has made an attempt to tabulate on his newsletter. But it's just, this is costing the city of LA tens and tens of millions of dollars. And it's not over yet. So glad that that money is going to pay legal settlements for conspiring lawyers instead of, as I think we mentioned a few minutes ago, trees, watering trees. Couldn't we just water the trees instead? No. All right. Let's head to um, another corner of our uh I guess, upcoming elections coverage. Um, and we're going to talk to Cerise Castle right now about the sheriff's department and a sheriff's forum that she moderated. Cerise Castle, good morning and welcome to LA Podcast. How are you today? Good morning. I'm good. Feeling very well rested <laughs> despite the heat. It helps you sleep, kind of, not really. It helps me fall asleep, but not yeah. stay asleep. <laughs> so we wanted to t spend a little bit and talk about, obviously, there's been a lot of sheriff stuff this week. And also you moderated, a, well, why don't you tell us, what did you do this week on the sheriff's department? It was pretty significant. Yeah. So this past week, I moderated um, the really like the only nonpartisan um, candidate forum that um, is going to happen between now and election day. We also have two more planned. It was the first of three. We have a series of three. The first one to kick off our event series was a uh, forum dedicated to discussing deputy misconduct. So deputy violence, deputy gangs, all that uh, malfeasance. You had a number of candidates there, but there were also some people who weren't there. So for your yes. the, the, what you moderated last week, who showed up, who didn't show up, and why didn't they show up? Yeah, so um, we had, I, I want to say a great turnout. There are nine people running for sheriff, and we had six of the nine. So that was uh, Berta Steinbrenner, Eric Strong, Matt Rodriguez, uh, Carla Carranza, Eli Vera, and um, April Sacedo Hood. Um, missing, we had Cecil Rambo, uh, Robert Luna, and Alex Villanueva. Uh, Alex Villanueva sent me a pretty rude email via his campaign manager that called me some names and said that he would be unavailable because he was, quote, washing his hair all three days of our event series. Cecil Rambo, um, I emailed him, called him, Text him, didn't hear anything. I'm not really surprised. I had some reporting on Cecil that pointed out um, several lies that he's told in the public arena um, and several lies that he told to me 
in an interview. Um, so I believe he's not exactly keen to sit down with me um, after <laughs> that's been pointed out. Um, Robert Luna sent me an email probably an hour before the event got started saying he had a scheduling conflict. Uh, mind you, our outreach started about two months ago. Um, the scheduling conflict I heard from several sources was him choosing to go to an in-person dumb club meeting, the Yes We Can Dumb Club in Long Beach, even though they had already endorsed him. So he was just hanging out at a dumb club meeting for a club that had already endorsed him. There was no reason for him to be there. Huh. It's a thinker. <laughs> we've also done, and I'll also mention, we've done some reporting on Robert Luna's record in Long Beach. So I think it's similar, like Cecil Rambo, they're just kind of, he was just kind of afraid to face the outlet that had done reporting, asking questions about his record when he's so content painting this one story, we come with the facts and that's two candidates now that are just unwilling to have a factual conversation. One of the questions you were asking where there was some some disagreement was over whether or not candidates would discipline deputies for covering their name and badge numbers while on duty. Um, tell us why you asked that. I think that's a, a good a good place to start. Yeah. So in putting these questions together, um, we worked really closely with impacted families, um, meaning families that have um, either lost a loved one to deputy violence or have experienced deputy violence firsthand. And this is a question that came from them. Um, and it's something that, you know, I personally observed being out um, covering protests and that sort of thing. Um, even just like walking around, um, I see that not all deputies display their um, name and badge number, which they're supposed to be doing. Uh, um, but I don't know. A lot of uh, a lot of deputies like to play um, fast and loose with um, complying. Should we? Shall we say? Um, so that's where the question came from. Uh, why do I think some people said yes and some people say no? Uh, I, I think it's just the culture of the sheriff's department. And we see this in LAPD too. I mean, there's not always a willingness, like they have these policies they have that are very clearly written. And when it's violated, there is just this huge um, hesitancy, unwillingness to hold people accountable, which I think is really ironic given that this is a law enforcement agency and they are so keen to enforce the law on, you know, everybody and they mama, except for when it comes to their own stuff. Um, that just doesn't make sense to me. And I think it also really plays into why people don't trust law enforcement, right? If you can't follow your own rules, like, why the hell should I follow these like arbitrary rules that you are coming into my neighborhood to enforce? You don't live here. You don't know me. And you can't even comply to your own rules. Like, what sort of authority are you supposed to have? One, you, you alluded to it a second ago, but one of the things that you did, I think, differently from I've watched lots of candidate forums this election cycle. I haven't seen anything like what you did with regards to making sure that there were statements and questions in there from several black women who included family members of people who have been either killed or directly affected by police violence. The, the question I have for you is just why, why did you do that? And why are, why, what are we missing by not doing that basically in every single candidate forum that there is? Yeah, I mean, and I think this is why you see so many people protesting these candidate forums, because these candidate forums are put together by a very homogenous group of people in closed off rooms, and it's not really a public community process. And that's just not the type of event that I wanted to put on. The Sheriff's Department is a department that is charged with policing our community. They are doing harm to our community. Our community is suffering the consequences. And I wanted to make sure the community had a voice at the table and was actively involved in planning this event and got a chance to ask the questions that they haven't been given a chance to. I mean, it's impossible for a lot of these people to get a meeting with 
sheriff's department officials. I know because I've been standing right there when they ask for the meeting and they're denied, when their call goes straight to voicemail, even though they've been promised by an assistant chief that he's going to make sure that he carves out time on a Monday to talk to them. And I just wanted to make sure that everyone had a chance to ask those questions of the people that are vying to be top cop. Um, because, you know, if, if I hadn't done that, they wouldn't have ever had that opportunity. And you mentioned, you know, these protests that have been happening, and it is just because people aren't getting representation for their issues. But also, like, can we look at how um, ridiculous and terrifying it is that we have to represent victims of the department that the people have killed and these families um, as part of this forum at all. Like that was very striking to me too, that we are spending so much time discussing like, what are we doing about this? And the person who is in charge of this department right now is not even there to face these victims and these families of these victims. It it was just very striking to me, like how, what a disconnect um, there is. Yeah. I mean, it says a lot right there. You covered a lot of ground. There was a lot of material. What do you remember most and what do you think you found most surprising as you were interviewing these people about their positions on everything? Honestly, what was most surprising to me was the level of decorum displayed by all candidates because I'm used to dealing with Sheriff Villanueva where that just goes out the window and he's telling you that women need to be put in a shed and beat. He's calling people names. He's called me names. And I was just like, honestly, like really impressed that we had people from a wide range of the political spectrum that were cooperating and answering questions that I'm sure for some of them were very uncomfortable. And I was happy that afterward, I could continue these civil conversations with these candidates. And they all told me, can't wait for the next one. I think we kind of see from the other three candidates that there are still some people that are interested in that secrecy, um, you know, playing by my own kind of rules thing. But it at least made me happy that you know, some people are willing to engage with the community. It says a lot. Um, Speaking of answers, I guess, um, (laughs) last week we had the news that an L.A. County Superior Court judge ruled that Sheriff Villanueva has to testify to the Office of the Inspector General under oath about our favorite topic, deputy gangs. Google this. Um, he has said he will testify. I want to make sure I'm saying this right, but he doesn't want to do it under oath. And he claims that they don't have power to subpoena him. Is that right? Yes. Again, it's, it's truly like, it's truly something just to like, watch the top cop in Los Angeles County, the man who's in charge of the biggest law enforcement agency in the world, just say, you know what? The law doesn't apply to me. That's his argument? Yeah. Why why should anyone follow laws in LA County? If this is like our if this is our law enforcement representative, truly, why why is anyone listening to the law? Like hell of an example you're setting, Mr. Villanueva. And what it like what is he thinking that he's going to be able to get out of it? I mean, first of all, first of all, like not under oath is like one thing we could talk about that among like other departments currently being investigated for things at the city level. Um, but like, what is, what is he thinking? Like he's going to just evade this and then they'll just forget about it or what, what's his arc? Why is he trying to do this? What's this power move? I don't know what the strategy is, but I mean, the house of cards is falling fast and I think he's just throwing everything but the kitchen sink at the wall in an attempt to hold on and continue being in power. It's, yeah. Okay, but then this also kind of gets to a question that I've been having about LA County civil process because in LA County, we don't have an independent court martial law enforcement system. Our court, our civil process is upheld by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so when I see this headline that says a Los Angeles County judge has issued a court order that says Sheriff Alex Villanueva needs to go under oath to talk about deputy gangs, 
my my immediate question then, which I haven't heard a good answer to, but I think there just isn't one, is who enforces that court order? I mean, the answer is his employees, which is who's, are they going to enforce that? Probably not. It's a separation of powers issue. I mean, really, what the alternative would be is like, oh, we'll have LAPD enforce it. But like, I don't see that really going well either, because I know that a lot of LAPD officers have a lot of support and respect for Mr. Villanueva. Do you think, does this get punted up to the state? I mean, I think he, I think he asked for it too, but I don't know if, like, conceivably that's some... Bring in CHP? A thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is like, and also his his explanation when he had one of his... um, you know, just random little social media press conferences, which Cerise, you have been the topic of many of these. Um, he went after he a few other me. journalists, another this time in particular. Um, but that he w- he was trying to argue that it had to do with his reelection campaign because, like, he, apparently this uh, the inspector general has had this information for a long time, didn't act quickly enough. Like it, all these arguments about like people are trying to destroy him. So I wonder if a lot of this is about just delaying it. I mean, I think people are trying to destroy him because like he's corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> His argument about making about the timing of the election as he's, um, you know, so so maybe he'll try to deflect it as, as long as he can for like, you know, just two months. But then also like using his campaign account this week to say, um, you know, I'm bringing my team to Hollywood to quote unquote, help clear homeless camps, um, expect us like this again, like this <laughs> abuse of you're not supposed to, I don't think use your campaign. You're account not. That that's way. a violation. And I mean, arguably a lot of the stuff that he's doing, the KFI show, the weekly press conferences, uh, the tour of LA County, um, all of that is arguably campaigning. It's done with LASD staff with LASD resources and it's sort of packaged as like ah oh, this is community outreach but it's it's very clearly uh re-election um so I yeah I'm very curious to see um what the powers that be um will say about this action because I I think it's a very clear <laughs> violation where we're using county resources for the incumbent's re-election bid and one other thing he brought up, the reason that he had this press conference was that there was, it was determined that there was a cover up in a situation where uh, a deputy knelt on someone's neck. Can you just briefly go over that one case and uh, who those deputies were? Yeah. So essentially what happened um, in one of our county jails, there was an incident where several deputies, um, this was during the trial of Derek Chauvin, of course, the police officer who murdered George Floyd. Um, While that was going on, I guess LASD wanted to reenact that um, and had several deputies kneel on the neck of a man who was incarcerated at a county jail facility. This incident was never reported as a use of force, which is illegal, (laughs) just simply what it is. Um, and although the issue was brought to Sheriff Villanueva's attention, according to several staff members at LASD, um, he disregarded it and kept it pushing. Um, the video was eventually leaked to, um, Miss Eileen Chekmedian over at the Los Angeles Times, who wrote about it, um, that made Alex Villanueva very upset. He said that this was the first time that he saw the video and that uh, action was being taken. Um, However, that is not the case. He viewed the video several months ago. And essentially, uh, the incident was, they attempted to bury the incident. Um, However, um, Eli Vera has come forward and identified himself as the leaker. since that he since Mr. Vera put the video into the public, that, that has not been the case. There is now like a full-scale investigation that is being launched into the incident. And Sheriff Nueva is has land, launched his own sort of counter-investigation into that. 
into Eli Vera leaking the video. Um, this is the second investigation that he's opened into Eli Vera since Eli Vera has announced his candidacy for LA County Sheriff. Just bringing it all back around full circle. He really loves to investigate people <laughs> who say no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to what you just said, though, it, it seems like he su- that's been successful in terms of intimidating people into silence, at least kind it of. It has. From, yeah. And that's yeah. very, very, I mean, it, it's just bad that this is where we are. But, I mean, how do you, distinct, distinct having a different person who doesn't use, who doesn't weaponize a massive police force for their own pet projects, which maybe this is just every police force is like this besides replacing Alex, like what else is done to like alleviate the fact that an independently elected sheriff can basically do whatever they want without any accountability. Yeah. So the question is what can be done to repair, um, ripping down the system, I think. Um, (laughs) Maybe that's a little too extreme for some people, but definitely changing the system that we operate in. Right. I mean, um, none of the, laws that operate or that govern this country are supposed to be like steadfast right we make amendments to the constitution um we make amendments to the city charter we make amendments to the county charter and there is a amendment being um fronted by check the sheriff which would give the board of supervisors power to remove a sheriff um so again like we there are ways to sort of like change the system that we operate under um it, I think it really takes, you know, civic engagement from everyone and everyone being like tapped in on this stuff, um, continuing to be engaged, even when it's like not fun and sexy for Instagram anymore. Um, yeah, please stay on these people because I mean, they only do what we want them to when they feel like we're not going to elect them again. Um, and paying attention is, is, is truly key. After watching your your candidate forum, I was I learned a lot of new information about a number of candidates who I had very little information on before watching your forum. But I was Mish st- a comp. Mission mi- <laughs> you did a very good job. I appreciate it. Mission accomplished. But I still come to this fundamental question of who do I vote for and do I vote for anybody? Because at this exact moment, like... Well, please vote for someone. Uh, right. Let me just say this. Like, I'm going to get really real for a second. All you people on fucking Twitter are talking about, oh, I'm going to sit out this election. Voting for sheriff isn't cool. Like, what we should all do is just, like, not vote. That is the most elitist, classist garbage that I have ever heard in my life. What are the What are the most important things that we should be looking for? In a candidate? Yeah. I I think the most important thing, uh, unfortunately, the bar is really low for sheriff. I think I would love to elect a sheriff that hasn't, uh, I don't know, that just that believes that killing people is wrong. (laughs) I'd love to elect a sheriff that believes. Right, right. I mean, this is the United States of America. And as far as I know, extrajudicial killings are not a thing we do in this country. And yet it happens on a monthly basis at the hands of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. I would like to elect a sheriff that sees that as a problem and would like to see it fixed. Um, Very simple things. I would like to see a sheriff that complies with subpoenas. I would like to see a sheriff that goes to the Civilian Oversight Commission once a month when they have the meeting. Very simple. And yet impossible for many people yeah, these are these are low low <laughs> bars cerise is there anything else that you'd want to add i guess about this entire situation our next forum is coming up on april 25th it's going to be in person in the antelope valley so if you want to come go to our rsvp link which is bit.ly slash not forum to get those in-person seats so you can come and see the candidates live and directo in person um they're all really tall. That's one thing I've noticed about them. <laughs> um, if you can't make it in person, we will be streaming it online. You can get all that information at the link that I just mentioned. It's on April 25th at 6 p.m. Be there. Like I said, get this information and vote June 7th. Vote. If you don't, I will be knocking on your door and giving you 
a speech and lecture about why voting is important. I will find you. Thank you, Cerise. Thanks, Cerise. Great ending. (laughs) That will do it for us this week. You have been listening to LA Podcast. This is episode 221. Thank you to everyone listening, especially to those of you who have subscribed to our Patreons. Don't forget, fanny packs. Keep them in a secured location, but please do order them. Uh, you can do both of that, both of those things at patreon.com slash LA podcast. Everything we do on this show is funded by you, and we are grateful to be able to continue this independent project free for all. Until next week, goodbye. Sailor, is it paradise? And when we make it worse, we'll make it nice. What's the forecast tonight?